welcome to the Culture Happens podcast, where we discuss the future of work and company culture. My name is Gabrielle Thomas, also known as Gabby. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm the diversity, inclusion, and belonging program manager for our product and engineering teams, and I've been at HubSpot for almost two and a half years. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about something that can affect emotional safety, well-being, and productivity in the workplace, which ultimately limits a company's culture from being truly inclusive and that thing is microaggressions. Joining me in the conversation are two amazing people, Akia Obas, Senior Manager of Data and Analytics at HubSpot, and Renee Reed, UX Researcher at LinkedIn, as well as activist, speaker, and mentor. Welcome to Culture Happens. Um, let's just start off with you both giving a brief intro of yourselves. Please share your pronouns, where you're located, share a little bit about what you do, and if you have something that's been giving you energy lately. Uh, Renee, I'll start with you. Fantastic. I love this space, by the way, just being here with these amazing Black women. Um, so yes, I am Renee. I am a design, a UX design researcher here in the Bay Area uh, by ways of New York and Atlanta. So I've been hugging the East Coast, so I'm making my tour now uh, on the West Coast. Uh, as you mentioned, I am a self-proclaimed activist in making sure that there's representation within the UX industry as well as the tech industry for uh, underrepresented or, as I like to say now, um, underestimated uh, mm -hmm. groups as well. That's courtesy of uh, Arlene Hamilton. Uh, Arlington. Uh, so yeah, in, in my day-to-day, -day, it's just about making sure that I'm accomplishing great work, design work, uh, but also making sure that I am uh, establishing and cultivating community. And I'm also a podcaster now, a newly crowned podcaster. So uh, yeah, just keep adding on to the, uh, the resume. <laughs> awesome. And can you just share your pronouns with us so we can make yes. sure we got them? She, queen, her. <laughs> okay. Okay, queen. I love it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, Akia. I'm still on that. So yeah, my pronouns are queen, she and her. I love that, Renee. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so my background is analytics. Uh, I've been in analytics for the past 10 years. My background before analytics, I was an economist. So my academic background is um, economics. And my first job out of grad school was a researcher job for IDC. So I worked there for five years, uh, jump ship, and really wanted to get my foot in the door with the tech company. Like, forget about learning about it and you know making recommendations from the outside. I want to be on the inside. So I joined um, a big tech company, EMC, uh, now Dell Technologies. I was I was one of the few one of the few minorities in um, in the Hopkinton office with uh, supporting engineering and had the opportunity to, you know, jump in the leadership um, position and hire people and build a team. So I built a team from four to 15, a global team while I was there. Um, joined an ad tech company, um, still in the data space, uh, leading a data and analytics uh, team. Um, so it was an exciting time to be there, but not really the space I was proud to work for when you start thinking about what ad tech really stands for. 
um, and the diverse and the lack of diversity, I think, in terms of the tools as well as the employees being a French company um, was challenging in, in, in a leadership role. So when HubSpot came knocking uh, about a year ago, I was excited to join HubSpot. I, I heard a lot of great things about the initiatives that they had, the transparency that they that um, HubSpot has around diversity and inclusion numbers. And uh, here I am leading a, a sales uh, data and analytics team. Wow, I am in very great company, I must say. Um, and for those listening, I do have to relay that Renee is wearing in a very fabulous head wrap right now. And Akia actually has a haircut that I think I may want to get soon. So I just, I feel so represented right now <laughs> in this space. Um, so we're gonna have a really great conversation. Um, but kind of let's starting out, you know, let's start start really high, um, defining microaggressions. Um, they're really defined as everyday, subtle, intentional or unintentional, verbal and nonverbal behaviors that occur in everyday interactions. They're often unacknowledged and casually degrade, demean, or put down someone who is part of a marginalized group. Now, I will be clear that even though they're called micro, that doesn't mean that they can't have life-altering effects on someone. Um, and I feel like it's, it's really important to recognize that microaggressions can happen anywhere. But for today's conversation, we're really going to be focusing more on the workplace and um, how you even identify them happening and, you know, how you can uh, and try and address and combat them. So kind of getting us started on the conversation, um, would both of you mind sharing when you first learned about the term microaggression um, and how you've seen them show up for yourself or others within the workplace? And we'll start with you, Akia. Sure. Um... Yeah, the term microaggressions, I must say, it's a new term for me. Um, I probably heard it two, three years ago when I, when it was like, I knew what it was when I, when I Googled it. I was like, oh, it's being black in America <laughs> or wherever you are, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the, it's part of the black experience. So um, the fact that, you know, they, they, that there's a term to address that I think is awesome because now we can call it what it is and it's defined. I grew up in Dorchester, so for the folks that aren't from Massachusetts, it's like an urban neighborhood in, in Boston in the 80s. Uh, it has an interesting history, Dorchester, because it used to be predominantly, you know, Irish and Jewish um, in the 60s. And then there was, you know, migration of Caribbean uh, families and Vietnamese families and people from the South. So my family landed in Dorchester and that's the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, and it was a privilege to grow up in a diverse neighborhood, I must say. However, I went to an all white public school outside of uh, Boston um, in a town called Brookline. So very wealthy uh, town that neighbors um, Boston and attended those schools from kindergarten to 12th grade. So I'm used to being the only one or the one of two um, in, in a classroom. Um, not many uh, people of color in terms of uh, teachers or administration. So you just kind of get, I don't wanna say used to it, but it was what it was, right? Mm -hmm. And first microaggression I'll never forget happened in fifth grade. So I had a best friend, I won't, won't say her name. Um, I had a best friend who happened to be white um, and smart, like she was smart, teacher's pet. Everyone loved her, had a great personality. Um, her family was awesome, we were really close and had been going to the same elementary school uh, for years since like second grade, I think is when I met her. So fifth grade, 
coming to school, we hand in our homework and the next day um, for this homework assignment, we're in the same class, the teacher pulls me aside and says, hey, you know, I see you have done very well on your homework assignment. Are you, you know, it's okay to get help, but when you copy off of your friend, then, you know, you know that, the, you know, we need to, we need to talk about that um, on how, like, basically told me I cheated, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, basically just called me a cheater. So I go, I, I knew it made me upset. I didn't, I don't remember crying, but I knew it made me upset. So I went home um, to my Jamaican father, tall black man, um, rest in peace, and told daddy what had happened. And he is like, <laughs> militant style Jamaican men. <laughs> so he, he strolls up to Brookline and talks to the teacher. And I remember, and he had me next to him and talks to the teacher and basically says, don't you ever accuse my daughter of cheating unless you got proof. Mm -hmm. That, and you know, and here I am 20 something years later, still remembering like how that made me feel. Like she really thought I cheated off of my friend. Why me? Yeah. Like, why was it me that she, it was homework? It wasn't like a test and she saw me, you know, uh, looking at someone's paper. So that would probably be the first um, experience that I remember uh, as a microaggression, um, you know, as a kid. In work life, it's like the every other day thing. I think I have so many examples of microaggressions. I don't even know where to start. Uh, <laughs> especially being in like a technical role. So the common one and the one that I share the most is assumptions people make on what you do because before you even open your mouth before you send an email that you go into a room and they assume that you are the marketing person or they assume that i'm the sales girl they never i have not yet experienced someone assume like wow she leads a data analytics and the engineering team she's the lead she's the leader of that team she's led global teams 15 of them so I think that's like a common one. Um, I could go on forever. I'll, I'll hand over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think just before Renee goes, um, I think it's important what happened in your experience as a child that you had that immediate like reinforcement from, in this case, it was your dad to really kind of show you and I would, I would hope that gave you an insight to like how you could hopefully either speak up for yourself and defend against some of these constant microaggressions that you have. But I think that that probably helped you more to like see somebody really show up for you and be able to call out that it, that wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. I think so often um, a lot of people don't get that case when they start to experience this. Yep. I, the, the word that um, you just used that stuck with me was defense. And I don't know if my approach has always been defend, like, how do I stand up for myself, but more so like, okay, how do I be strategic on how I'm going to move in these situations so it's not going to weigh on me? Because they're going to come, right? Like, mm -hmm. unfortunately, this is an issue that is, you know, hundreds of year old, years old. It just looks different today. Um, it shows up different. I, I don't know if I have ever um, had the courage to say, yo, that's a microaggression, or what did you mean by that? I more so mm. step back and like, all right, a microaggression on people stealing your ideas. Everybody's had that, right? Tell someone your idea, they shoot it down, mm. and then you find out they've, <laughs> they've <laughs> thrown it down, right? 
another common microaggression for a person of color in a leadership position. And I think like how I've dealt with situations like that is I'm just more strategic. I'm like, all right, I have to wait and hold on to my innovation and not share it with the world yet. Mm. Unfortunate for the company, right? But I'm gonna have to hold on to that and share that idea or share that insight or share that awesome, you know, way that we're going to save money or do something different till the right person in, is in the room that can do something about it or that can trust me or that's not going to shoot it down. So I think like I haven't really figured out how you defend yourself. I more have been like strategic and how do you maneuver as a black person in situations when microaggressions show up. Mm. Renee, you were shaking your head for a lot of that. When's the first time you remember learning the word microaggression? Really didn't happen until further along. The, the definition, the name, um, actually uh, having it called something, of course, until later on in my professional career, um, actually right out of college is when I first heard it, um, but kind of brushed it aside a little bit and you know, that uh, assimilation of this is just how things are and this is how things have always been. And I still, I just still got to push through it. It wasn't at a time in my career where I felt comfortable to address it. It was just kind of saying, oh, that's what it is and kind of moving along. But definitely numerous times throughout uh, my childhood and instances where, uh, or things were, um, blamed or I was looked at immediately as the uh, aggressor or the person who could have probably done this thing and my counterparts uh, who were uh, all uh, Caucasian at the time um, were definitely the ones who were responsible but yet it was something about um, Renee can you tell me what happened and it was like well I why me like there's a whole other room of people. Why are you looking at me as the person to, you know, talk about what happened? So that happened a lot through childhood. And um, I'll take a moment just to say, this is amazing. One, I spent time in Dorchester. Uh, so this is great that we're all just kind of talking. Candid. So this conversation is going to get really just candid and uh, okay. comfortable, like, you know, just hanging out like old friends. Yes. Um, and my entire family is Jamaican as well. So we're going to have a lot of common uh, responses, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah. The, a trini in the room. <laughs> okay. The island. <laughs> it's just, yeah, just vibes. <laughs> One big fat. One big island fest. Um, so yeah, so until my professional career, one, the one time that really stood out uh, was I was in a room with um, execs and C-levels and I was uh, talking through a project and it was incredible and I knew I had nailed it. And a manager kept on interrupting and saying things like what she meant to say or what she's trying to say. And I could see it on their face where the manager at the time, again, this is early in my career, thought they were kind of doing a service by thinking that they were adding on to the narrative, the dialogue that I was presenting, even though everything was going fine. I was answering the questions and it was just this moment where they felt like they had to put something else on to what I was doing and how they would position it was what Renee meant to say or what she was trying to say, and would literally just repeat the same thing that I was saying, maybe add a different word here or there. 
And I just remember, like, first of all, that's what I was saying. Second, that was probably something that could have waited. Um, but, but, you know, afterwards, it wasn't like they were, they weren't trying to correct me at all. They, like I said, they weren't adding anything. It was, I don't, actually, I, I actually don't know what it was. It was just like the need to say something. to feel was it like a cosign? It like, was. Do you think it was like a cosign, you know, like. Maybe, I don't know if it was a cosign, but if it was like, it was, it was a way to validate mm. what I was saying by adding this extra thing on there of like, she's saying it, but I want to just put the bow on it so that you know that the last word is coming from mm. a person who is, you know, um, it was a, a white woman at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, again, looking back on it, I was just like, oh, yep. my, word, my word wasn't valid enough. I didn't have a present. I don't, I don't know. Like, when, so, I, when I hear that, Renee, I, you know, I'm interpreting as she didn't want to share that space. Mm. Right? Like, mm-hmm. that's how I hear, like, oh, do you, you wanted some of this floor, too. Like, you needed, <laughs> you wanted right. to be a bar- part of the storytelling or um, ego maybe it just yeah it's a microaggression for sure um i think like all of what you're saying i feel like i'm like oh my god yes 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 um i feel like just to add it because we are three black women i think another one that's big for us in how we physically show up is our hair um i think for me that has been something that (laughs) akia is sighing Renee is, is smirking. Um, I think that's a big one for me that I, you know, I feel like you can either go real Martin Luther King, MLK, or you could go real Malcolm X on how you want to respond. Um, I love the representation though, um, just in this space right now of just how we are showing up as individual Black women, right? In a representation of wraps and dreads and naturals i mean that's something that i know for a fact that i I didn't necessarily see Mm. 10 years ago no right i don't think it was encouraged i mean i have stories of it not being encouraged in the corporate space um from other black people that's right right that it's you know it's not professional it's not or it's too black yep or it's too black you're gonna scare people yep um which yeah like i wish i woke up a long time ago and went natural in the workplace you know like um i did have locks before i uh in college and my first job i had locks but i always it was in a a neat little bun like it was neat it was pulled up it was a hundred bobby pins in there (laughs) (laughs) trying to hold all that back and i honestly i just wish i just didn't care, you know, because the, I don't know if, if I had showed up with straight hair or dreads or whatever, right, to try to, you know, um, conform in some, in some way. I don't know if the microaggressions would have stopped. I don't know if they would have treated me any differently. And if, if the point of to conform is because they'll see you as a different person and they'll see, you know, and they'll see you as someone that can hold that space and someone that they don't have to validate or someone that they'll trust their idea 
I wish I woke up and realized like they're gonna see me as the black woman that I am. Mm-hmm. No matter I what my hair looked like. <laughs> no matter what my hair looked like. I you know, hearing us talk about it, I feel like there's like two ways I want to take this question, but with you know it being called microaggressions, right? I think there's so much mental work that we have to do to break them down. I feel like sometimes you're like, was that was that one? Or am I just, you know, am I being paranoid? Am I overthinking this? And I feel like there's always that, like, you got to do the gut check talk with somebody. Sometimes you try and do it with yourself or you may like go to somebody who you think will understand and be like, this is what just happened. Am I reading this right? Is this wrong? And I feel like there's so there's just all this mental work. And I feel like, you know, there's like clear differences between what like a macro and a microaggression looks like. And I think there's like, of course, for like any racist, sexist, or homophobic remarks, like it's very easy to call them out. And there, there's a research that shows that subtle forms of interpersonal discrimination are at least as harmful as more overt forms of discrimination. I would probably um, say they could, they were probably even worse because those can accumulate very subtly over time. And before you know it, you have a bad bag, a heavy bag of built up microaggressions that have been happening throughout your day, not just within the four walls, not with just within like the nine to five, but throughout the day and those accumulations of those, like the blunt ones, the macro, the ones, the ones that you were talking about that are just very obvious, you know, usually it's a blunt force, right? But those little ones that chip away and fester over time can do probably the longest damage um in my opinion my experience because then when it when the awakening happening happens you realize just how deep the wound is that it's not at the surface that is something that is literally have has dug into your spirit your emotion everything so to your point gabby about when things happen that negotiation that takes place did that happen? Was that, the, did she, did he just, part of that is you're negotiating the things that have happened over time to try to compare, is that a microaggression? So that's why things, you know, when people talk about people, you know, people being sensitive or people being too emotional, it's like, you have to understand the lineage of the experience to understand why that certain comment that certain gesture affected me the way that it did. Someone, when I used to tell the story, I tell the story a lot when I first came to the Bay Area, how I would recognize how people would not sit next to me on the train going to work. Now, this is a busy train. And growing up in New York and going on the Metro North, I mean, there are just people just everywhere and you want a seat. And to watch people very clearly, like this was no mistake, watching people like kind of looking over, is there, is there another seat? Could there be anyone else I can sit next to? Is this my only choice? And literally standing up rather than sitting down. Mm-hmm. Even before I walk into work. Mm-hmm. The accumulation of mm-hmm. those little things fester up and then create those big blows. 
Mm. Okay. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I feel like, so, you know, that example you gave was very in-person world specific, right? But now that we're in a <clears throat> mostly virtual world, right? Do you find that there's a difference between the microaggressions that you may experience on screen versus in person? Yeah, I think it's important that when we say microaggressions that they don't live on their own in this kind of outside world. Like microaggressions are being said, experienced uh, by a person. Like someone owns that microaggression. They're saying it they're creating it, they're putting it out there. So as long as there are people in this virtual digital space, <laughs> microaggressions are going to exist, whether that's being in a space where people uh, are just, don't acknowledge someone in a virtual room where people are just, you know, there's no difference if going back to that conversation I was having uh, about my previous experience, that could still happen. Right. If you're doing a presentation and someone just jumps in and says, "Okay, what, what, what Gabby meant to say is," and what you know that doesn't change because it's in a virtual space. That person is still conducting uh, that microaggression. So, uh, do you think the that impact Renee is the same? Like, I think it, let's use your example. If you were to relive that experience digitally, do you think the impact would have been the same for you? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I think it would be right because I again I'm still I'm still in a, in, in a type of an environment, right? So whether it be in an office or home or things mm -hmm. like that, I've experienced it. I now I'm in a space where I probably well I don't necessarily can walk over to a coworker and say, hey, can I can I just talk to you really quick? So there's an, an actual an, an ex a bigger barrier. Right, because now I've got to try to message someone, see if they have time to talk, or rather than being able to turn to someone and say, "Can I just, can I just, I just want to." So I remember coming out that meeting and just kind of saying, "Hey, did you hear that?" I just want to make sure. So there's an added layer of uh, interaction that has changed in this space of like, how do you combat these microaggressions when you're confined? into these different spaces, right? Yeah, I think you make an awesome point, Renee. I think that is a, that's like an awesome point in terms of you lose um, the ability to provide that feedback after the fact. You're like forced to, uh, you know, address that head on in real time. If we use the example of, you know, someone cutting in or um, co-signing what you say um, in a digital world to, you know, that we live in now to your point, like, you don't have the opportunity. So if you want to be take kind of the defensive um, approach, you would have to say something like real time in that meeting mm -hmm. to that person or like, hey, you know, let me finish and we'll, we'll definitely, you know, follow up with comments or however you want to massage that situation. But it sounds like now we are, you know, if you want to take that approach, you would have to be real time. And I know, Akia, you mentioned earlier that you're still, you know, you, you take more of a strategic po approach rather than like maybe calling it out. Um, I'm just tired. <laughs> I don't feel tired. Always, like, why? <laughs> to your, to Renee's point, you know, you've been dealing with microaggressions from the moment you come out black. <laughs> so I think like at work at, at this point, I was like, I'm just exhausted. Mm -hmm. 
gospel. Now, for a lot of those, like, you know, that's the, we're talking about the microaggressions we experience, right? Now, in the case of ones that you witness, mm. and especially being black and being a black woman, how, how do you see your role in addressing those microaggressions that you see happening to somebody else? Like, what is the thought process there? That's hard. I, you know, I think a part of, you know, the black superwoman syndrome, I don't know if you're familiar with that, I think a part of the black superwoman syndrome is we feel like we have to speak up. That is our place. <laughs> that that's what's expected of us. And honestly, I feel like it's to each his own. If you feel like it, you know, in that you feel you want to speak up, I say go for it. If you feel like you don't want to speak up, I say fall back too. Protect what's good for you and your spirit in the moment. Um, I have been in those situations and I tend to, you know, really try to comfort the victim. Because mm. it's, you know, it's safer. Um, you know, it might, maybe, maybe not the most courageous, but it's the safer where I'll pull someone aside like, yeah, I saw, yeah, I saw that that happened. That wasn't right. Maybe provide a little advice or maybe say, how can I be supportive or be an advocate of that idea? And how can I share that? What can I do for you? Maybe just, op you know, open-ended question to the victim of the person on the other side of that microaggression is usually my approach. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I've taken on and like I mentioned earlier about being the activist. So I've definitely taken on uh, some of that responsibility to be a voice uh, and be the, uh, a person who addresses things. Um, in doing so, I've definitely had to realize what battles uh, I need to uh, pick and, and fight because I can't fight them all. I, I, I just can't. Um, it's a lot of energy. And again, I've had to learn that the hard way of, you know, being trying to fix everything, trying to your point about being, you know, the black superwoman uh, syndrome, the black woman superwoman uh, syndrome. So what I have done to your point um, is just understand the person who the microaggression is being uh, received by as well but something that have that's worked really well for me is um first asking the person how did this show up for you because i know how it showed up for me i know how i saw it and i just want to make sure that you received it the same way before i address this because i don't want to put words in your mouth about what i felt i saw or how that was interpreted so how did that show up for you but then also that person who made the microaggression actually saying that same thing of saying i just want you to know how this showed up for me and let you understand the weight that that microaggression that thing carried when you said it and I mean, they talk about this with microaggressions, the, the intent versus the impact, things like that. What, 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 what does that mean? What happens? And it's just in that moment of creating that dialogue of, I just, I just need you to understand how this showed up for me. And some people may let it slide, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know. And that responsibility that I have chosen to put on myself has awakened the aspect of, what it has done is it has freed up other people. When other people see 
the ability to address a situation like that. Maybe because they didn't know how to, or they just always, you know, suppressed it or things like that. But my ability to address the situation is more about freeing up other people to be able to do the same when they've experienced it so that they know you don't have to keep dealing with those wounds and those little cuts, those little paper cups that keep just going, going, going at you. Like you can address that thing in a way that, you know, you're going to release it, but at least you know that you've, you've addressed it head on to let that person know. So um, that has been something that I've learned over time. And because one, because people have said, listen, because you've done that thing, you made me realize that I can have a voice in how this thing affects me. And that has been so major. And, and, and here's a little thing. It, here's not a little thing, but here's the thing. And, and being able to address those microaggressions when they happen um, thoughtfully or just with, even strategically, like you said, it creates this, um, it creates the ability to, when those bigger things come, that you have more of that confidence and courage to be able to speak to those macros even more because you've just gotten to this space of, no, I can, I can address this because I, I can let you know how it, how it showed up for me. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the other powerful things that comes out of that is like that affirmation that like my feeling is valid, whether it's, you know, the little, it's like a little jug, like, that made me feel weird. I don't know why, but that someone else is like kind of speaking power to your emotions. I mean, I think one of the things we end up talking about at HubSpot at least is like the value of being an upstander. And if you like haven't heard that term before, it's the opposite of like being a bystander. And with the bystander effect, the greater number of people present for something, usually something negative, the less likely anyone is willing to, in, you know, um, jump in. And I think kind of to what both of you said, mentioned is like kind of really being that upstander, whether it's in the moment or helping afterwards to provide more, you know, support. Um, I think that's like super important when thinking about for other people, how they show up with microaggressions and like really giving them that power. Um, I think it's like super important to that. And I think, you know, the, the other thing we talk about is like addressing microaggressions as a form of feedback, right? And Given feedback can be really hard <laughs> at times. And I think at least, you know, we promote the SBI framework of situation, behavior, impact. And I think that's really following what you were talking about, Renee. Um, and I think, you know, for those listening who maybe have asked the question, what do I do? How do I show up? I think, you know, having some sort of framework, um, even like a script that you can use really does help to give you more confidence in like delivering that feedback and kind of to what Renee was saying, the more you do it, the easier it is, especially for the bigger things. I think what's important in, in when we talk about addressing those microaggressions, especially if it's our Caucasian white uh, counterparts, is I'm giving you information and tool of how it showed up mm -hmm. for me as a black person. It is on you now to understand that and take that so that if you see the same thing that you're counterparts are doing you can speak to it right away just be like hey you know what mm -hmm. i had someone address this to me and a moment of vulnerability mm -hmm. a moment of courage to be like listen i had this black woman actually tell me that that is out of order 
This is how it showed up to, for her. And just be mindful of that. Like it's on you to take that mm-hmm. and use that information again for yourself. Mm-hmm. But when you're in those spaces, and I always tell one of the, my main kind of mantras for my allies and like allies who are active allies is that your allyship means more to me when I'm not in the room. Mm-hmm. Because that's when I know that you are activating it. That's when it matters. And that's when it usually matters is when I'm not in the room. What's the saying? Is it reach one, teach one, teach one, reach one? That, that sounds about right. Yeah. That, that like, about I right. taught you, like, now you go and that's do right. that. That's right. No, that's right. You go, go do that. I agree. That, I mean, great advice, um, Renee. And, you know, maybe from this talk, I'll change my strategy, right? And figure out when it makes sense to be on the defensive, right? I think, you know, um, I just hope us as Black women continue to protect our soul and our spirit. Mm-hmm. We, we hold so much mm-hmm. um, and we step into those, um, to those shoes to take care of everyone so often where I think when you are in the situation, don't beat yourself up on no matter what you decide to do in that moment. 100%. Mm-hmm. 100%. Well, you know what? I think that is an awesome place for us to wrap. You know, maybe we'll have a part two again on Renee's podcast. But Renee and Akia, thank you so much for joining me this evening and, you know, really adding to my spirit. For everyone listening, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Culture Happens, HubSpot's podcast, all about the future of work and company culture. Thank you and have a good evening.